Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Over 460 million people around the world have disabling hearing loss. Starkey Hearing Foundation provides hearing aids and hearing related health care to millions of patients in over 100 countries. But they need your support to continue helping those in need. Give the gift of hearing by donating to the Listen In Campaign. Go to listenincampaign.org to donate today. That's L-I-S-T-E-N-I-N-C-A-M-P-A-I-G-N dot O-R-G. This is the MLW Radio Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to Primetime with Sean Mooney. And, you know, folks, we had a great start to our new version of the podcast with the first of a fantastic lineup of guests. Now, uh, some of the greatest superstars that uh, we plan to have here and other people who have uh, continued to be a tremendous uh, part of the world of professional wrestling and having a tremendous impact along the way. Uh, Our last episode featured a man who not only was a big part of one of the greatest eras of wrestling during the 80s and 90s, uh, he was also behind the scenes and in front of the camera, On stage, you remember him as Brother Love. Yes, of course you remember him, and he is known to the world today, though, as the uh, King of Sports and Recreation podcast with his award-winning show, Something to Wrestle With, Bruce Pritchard, along with his co-host, Conrad Thompson. And I really want to thank Bruce for coming on and being the first guest uh, we've had on primetime with Sean Mooney. Uh, You know, Bruce and Conrad, they've done 70-plus shows now. And uh, I'll tell you, though, I know for a fact that we covered some ground they have never covered. Uh, As Bruce and I compared notes on what it was like to live in the kingdom of the WWF uh, in Stamford, Connecticut, back during that golden time. I hope you had a chance to listen to it because uh, we we had a lot of fun. And it was, uh, you know, it was like living in Camelot, if you'll pardon the King Arthur reference. But in many ways, uh, it really was like that. And, you know, we're a small group of people living in this bubble. And it was an amazing time to be part of the WWF. Uh, It was also fun talking to Bruce about those times. And if uh, you missed it, I encourage you to take a listen. uh, If you really want to know what it was like to live in the kingdom of Vince McMahon and just uh, uh, what it was, uh, you know, it was a family. Uh, Nothing like the massive corporation the WWE has now become. So, again, Thank you, Bruce, and I hope to be talking to you soon. Uh, I also want to thank everybody for sending their suggestions for guests. Keep them coming. Now we got some great uh, suggestions here, and we're already on the case, starting to reach out. We've already got uh, some great ones lined up, and it has been so much fun uh, talking to many of these personalities that uh, I've, I've reached. And in some cases, you know, it's been a long time, decades. 
but I can't wait to get them in front of the microphone, and it is going to happen. This is certainly the case with my guest on the podcast this week, a superstar I had the pleasure of working with when, when he was uh, one of the most popular as well as uh, most despised superstars uh, in the WWF. He is none other than the Million Dollar Man, who besides uh, having a new movie that's just about to premiere, uh, we've got a lot of topics to discuss. Uh, but before we get to my conversation with Ted, I want to remind everybody that I still have DVDs of the unreleased, never-before-seen matches, 1986 to 1995. And, folks, I'm, I'm going to draw this week's winner uh, after I talk with MDM. So be sure and stick around. We're going to have a uh, you know, drawing out of the uh, ding, ding, ding bowl. And uh, we're going to give another one away next week. Now, all you have to do for a chance to win is go to iTunes, give us a review and a rating. And then I'll throw all those names in the ding, ding, ding bowl. And I'm going to pick one out. And it could be you. And keep the comments and questions and suggestions coming. You can reach me directly through Twitter at Sean Mooney Who or Prime at Primetime MLW at Primetime MLW. And of course, by email at Primetime at MLW.com. Okay? So let's get to it. Now, when you talk professional wrestlers and you ask them what they think is the greatest gimmick ever, they rarely hesitate and they say the million dollar man. Now, when Vince McMahon was looking for the right person to become that character, he decided the right man for the job was none other than Ted DiBiase, and he definitely was. But, uh, folks, you know, it came with a price, and we're going to get into all that in this podcast. The awesome part of that job and the uh, not-so-great part, and nobody can tell it better than the million-dollar man himself, Ted DiBiase. And, Ted, uh, thank you so much for coming on Primetime. It's, it's a pleasure to be with you here, Sean. It's great to talk to you again, by the way. <laughs> well, well, I love hearing that laugh. It brings back so much, uh, so many memories for me. And I have to tell you, and I hope uh, y- you remember this, but it hasn't been since uh, I was with the WWF that we saw each other. Uh, it was maybe like seven years ago, and I was in, uh, I think, Albuquerque, or I was in one of my many jobs along the way here, and I heard your voice, and it was at a hotel and uh, I said, I think that's Ted DiBiase. And I, I went over to the table, and yeah, it was you. Do you, do you remember that, that running into you me? You know what? Now that you said that, I do. Oh, my gosh. That's yeah. right. I can't remember why I was there, whether I was there. It was, if it wasn't church-related, it was well, – I had to be church-related. Yeah, I think you were on a retreat or something. It was yeah. – I know yeah. you, were, uh, you were there for a reason, but uh, it, it was a great uh, – it was really great running into you because it had been years. But um, you've got a lot going on. Oh, man. <laughs> Even man, now. I, do I ever. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. And we want to talk about this this film coming up, The Price of Fame, which is debuting on, on Tuesday. It's going to be premiering. Uh, and, and we're going to get into all that uh, you know got you on that journey and, and how it got there. But uh, I really like when I, when I do these podcasts – uh, to really begin at the beginning. And I think this relates a lot to how this uh, film uh, got to be what it is. Um, you know, you, uh, you know, grew up uh, uh, in a, uh, you know, with a, a, a loving family, but there was a lot to uh, that journey. And I know your mom was a, a wrestler and uh, your biological father wasn't around for very long. So I, I'm going to let you kind of start us there and, and, and uh, tell us a little bit about those very early days. 
Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I'm often asked of all the things I could have chosen to do, why would I choose wrestling? Because yeah. it's obviously not a normal job. Uh, and I said, well, it was I, it was a, the influence of a, a a very good father figure in my life. My mother uh, met Mike DiBiase. I guess they they were both wrestlers, and uh, uh, Mike uh, was not only a professional wrestler, but uh, you know. A storied career at the University of Nebraska, three time, three three consecutive years conference heavyweight champion. Uh, and I think in 1946, prior to going to Nebraska, while he was still in the Navy, uh, won the AAU National Heavyweight Wrestling title. So uh, I grew up with a dad that yeah, and was very well respected in professional wrestling during that time. Uh, and so I grew up with a dad who was a great role model and somebody, you know, I grew up wanting to be like, and, uh, of course the one thing he never wanted me to be was a wrestler. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, before that, Ted, because, uh, I, I find And now that learning more and more of your story, um, we had kind of similar beginnings in this is that, you know, my, my father was not around much when I was young and I, you don't really, there's not much you can find about your biological father, but, uh, those early memories, was he just never there or? Uh, well, no, actually, you know, he, you know, my, here's what my mother said about him. She said, she said, Ted, she said, your biological dad was not a bad man. He was actually a very nice man. He says, but, and he was a professional singer. My dad had this beautiful, deep bass voice. I mean, everybody, you know, every time I go and do a, a radio interview, they go, oh my gosh, your voice, you know, you should be doing voiceovers. Yeah. And I go, unfortunately, uh, my father was a professional, my biological father was a professional singer and I couldn't carry a tune with it at, if it had handles on it. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, he, according to my mother just was not real ambitious. It was kind of like, uh, he was very talented. He was a backup singer for Tennessee Ernie Ford. Wow. Uh, and, but he just, she think she didn't think that he pursued it enough. It was kind of like she was he was waiting around for it to fall in his lap. Yeah. That was those were her words. Uh, so you know, my I didn't have much of a memory of him. I know that when I was about four, he came out to Arizona where I was with my grandmother at the time, mm -hmm. and he took me he, he he picked me up and he took me back to California. Took me to Disneyland. It's so funny. I actually remember Disneyland vaguely, and uh, I actually remember going to Tennessee Ernie Ford's house. <laughs> wow! <laughs> and uh, uh, it's crazy, uh, but anyway, that not you know. And going forward, uh, every Christmas and every birthday, I, I got a gift from him uh -huh. and and a and a nice letter. So, uh, what's really uh, strange and we we don't have time to go into it today yeah, sean yeah <laughs> yeah but i just my, wondered if he was ever a presence in your life because i know uh well he wasn't mike dibiase was until, until mike dibiase died yeah yeah oh i know when, when my stepfather died and my mother ended up remarrying my biological father and i think it was more out of a out of a, a need for security than anything else but I still really didn't, you know, I didn't really have a relationship with him uh, until even after that because she moved out to California with him and my younger brother, mm -hmm. and I stayed with my grandmother. Uh, it's, you know, it's not that I didn't, I wasn't, uh, it wasn't anything about not liking him. I had had a year in school. I was playing football. I was being noticed, 
And that was, I said, I'm going to stay right here. I've already been noticed by people. I don't want to go start over in California. And I, I didn't like LA. <laughs> yeah. Now, what were you about five when, when Mike came into your life? I was five. I was five when he came into my life and I had him for 10 years. Wow. And, you know, and the reason I, I talk about this is that, uh, you know, I've I've gone on a journey through my life, you know, dealing with with that relationship and and uh, the father figure. And I know, you know, people that I've met along the way, it's had a tremendous impact in their lives. And and what happens in those years, and how they're uh, shaped. And and some people say, you know, it's before five, you're kind of that person, and that that is definitely not the case. Yeah. And I know you said when you were 15, when you lost Mike. And right. I, I know that that had a tremendous impact on your life and where uh, the, the path led from there. I, absolutely. I mean, you know, I had this man for 10 years and yeah. I, you know, had just, you know, I just had completed the ninth grade or my freshman year of high school. And I had done very well mm-hmm. in football. And even as, you know, I, I had one year in amateur wrestling and, uh, our varsity heavyweight was a state champion. And so, uh, uh, <laughs> I got beat up a lot that year, but I learned a lot. And as a JV heavyweight, I, I won all but two of my matches. And the two guys that beat me uh, were were uh, state champions in their weight class, and they didn't make weight, so they put them down on the JV team to get a to get a match. And so I did very well, and and that was it. And and as a you know, it, it was like the relationship with him was starting to blossom because now was now is the time in my life when I had a lot of questions and I needed a lot of help and uh, and and he was very proud of me and and which made me just beam you know because I was doing well and then all of a sudden he's gone yeah and that's like yeah. such a pivotal point in your yeah. life at, you know at yeah. fifteen and I know you talk about uh, you know just things that he said to you that have stayed with you forever yeah but oh yeah him being gone uh those things in your head didn't hit home as much as when you came home to him every night right right you know uh you know coming home to my mother's she just sank into despair and and mm-hmm. and, and alcohol and um uh, uh i was like you know it was a it was a, it was a scary time for me uh wondering what was going to happen but again the, the the some of those things that he did instill in me stuck i mean in a little town like Wilcox, Arizona, which is in the film, uh, and there's nothing to do. My, my one of the questions Teddy asked me, my son, he said, "Dad, what did you do here?" And I said, "Exactly." <laughs> we Dad, I live in Tucson. I know what these towns are like. Yeah. So. Oh yeah. Like, I wow. mean, I, you know, I, I, you know, you could see the whole town in ten minutes, yeah, and, and if you were, you know, if you were part of the cool crowd back then, I mean, the only what you did every weekend was party. You went out and got drunk and high and had a good time and. But I stuck to the, the convictions, and I stuck to my guns, and uh, you know, and I, I didn't do those things. I think the first, the first time I the, that I drank anything was um, after I had been offered a scholarship yeah. to play football at Arizona. My senior year, uh, I went out and, and uh, with a buddy of mine, and I had a couple. I got, I got drunk on like three glasses of wine. Yeah. Well. <laughs> That's what uh, happened back then. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, that was the first time I ever I'd, I'd ever really drank, yeah, and uh, so yeah. yeah, my dad had a huge impact on my life, and uh, I, I never have forgotten those those 
those life lessons. I mean, and of course, a lot about my dad, I, I learned from other people. He didn't talk about himself. I found out all the history about, you know, what he did at Nebraska and, and, and what a really great wrestler he really was. So uh, everybody else told me about him. Yeah. So how much uh, after that, after he passed that, uh, you know, you're 15 at the time, did you end up in Wilcox and then your mother heads out to California? Was that a, a pretty quick period of time? And then you went to live with your grandparents? Well, the the summer the summer of '69 is when uh, you know, I just completed ninth grade. We go to we went to Amarillo back in the territorial days. Uh, Amarillo was promoted by Dory Funk Senior, and yeah. they were very good friends of ours. And it's a place where my dad made good money. I had done really well, so he wanted to put me in a te- Texas high school football program. And then he dies. I mean, we're there, a month and he and he dies. And that forces us immediately to go to Arizona. So I'm starting off at my sophomore year of high school, uh, the 10th grade, uh, in Wilcox, Arizona, having my, having just lost my dad and my mother sinking into alcoholism and, uh, uh, and pretty much, uh, it was by the time I was, uh, you know, like that, my sophomore year into my junior year. Uh, I, I dealt with it, but my grandmother called my dad, my real dad and said, Hey, you know what? Your, 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 uh, your, your ex-wife is drinking herself to death and your son needs a dad. And he came, he came back on the scene and it was, it was funny. They remarry and then, then he basically raises my younger brother. Uh, and they go to California cause he, his job, you know, he wasn't a singer anymore, but he worked for one of the unions out there in California. He did, he was an electrician. He did lighting. He did, you know, he did lighting for like game show, like right. American bandstand and, mm-hmm. uh, and all that kind of stuff. So that's where his job was. And, 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 but I didn't go with him. I stayed with my grandmother. Yeah. I wonder if looking back, you ever, I, I know you, uh, when you hear you talk about this, you kind of go, you, you know, 15, then this happens. Then I go to West Texas state. Uh, I wonder if this, in this journey, uh, you realize how that period had such a, a really dramatic impact on your life. Yeah. Did oh, you realize yeah. that before or, or maybe when you guys were putting this uh, film together? Because I think you realized a lot of things in the making of it. Well, yeah. I mean, and, but I, I, you know, I realized, you know, as I got older, the impact that Mike had on my life, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's like, as I, when I, as I tell the story, I said, you know, I, I was driven that, I mean, it's like, I knew he was gone, but you know, I wanted to do what I knew would have made him proud. And so when I got the scholarship, uh, I actually had signed with Arizona. I'm watching wrestling when uh, wrestling comes on television in Arizona for the first time. And I don't know. And it's the, it's the wrestling tape out of Amarillo, Texas, <laughs> and they're coming to Tucson. And that's when I went back and for the first time in three years, saw Dory Funk and, uh, Dory Funk Jr. And Terry Funk and Terry talked to me into a recruiting trip. That's how I ended up at West Texas State. Yeah, that's where I was leading this to because a lot of uh, great wrestlers went to West Texas oh State. Uh, Dusty, oh uh, Tito Santana, uh, Bruiser Brody. Stan, am I getting these right? That Stan yeah. Hansen, also Tully Blanchard, Blanchard yeah. went there. I mean, wow. Me, me, my, me, Tully Blanchard, and Tito Santana, whose real name is Merced Solis. Uh-huh. We were all on the same team. <laughs> wow. And, and when I went there as a recruit, Stan Hansen was a student assistant. He had just he was just finishing up, huh. 
Yeah, Hanson and Brody. Uh, uh, oh, my gosh. Well, Dusty Rhodes went. He didn't play football, but Dusty played baseball at mm-hmm. West Texas State. That's crazy. Yeah. It's it's amazing. Um, but at the time, though, and, and then also had when, when Mike had passed, and he had was well-known in, in the uh, the world of, of wrestling. And, and a lot of these legends uh, who would become legends, maybe weren't there at that point, but, you know, Harley Race and these other guys, uh, did they become, uh, in some in some sense, a, a father figure? And did they uh, move you along towards wrestling, or just in life? Uh, how did these guys impact your life then? Well, well, okay, you know, they didn't immediately. They didn't impact my life, but yeah. it, it was it was kind of like I had always loved wrestling. I mean, it was yeah. like I would watch my dad on television, and then I would go in my bedroom, and I would take a hairbrush and I would cut interviews into the into the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's I mean, where it started. Okay, that, that's where that's where it started, <laughs> and and I just I, I I always loved it. I mean, he kept saying, you know, I you know, I, the one thing I don't want you to be is a wrestler, uh-huh. and and of course that's part of it too. It's it's not the wrestling; it's the lifestyle that came along with it, you know. And the good news is that lifestyle is a lot better now because there's a lot more accountability built into the program, and they're not on the road constantly like we are. So a lot of things have changed for the better. But now I understand, you know, you know, when you're a kid, you go, well, my dad did it. It's good enough for me. And uh, uh, so I didn't think I didn't really think that much about it. I thought it was football. I thought it was football. Mm -hmm. And then uh, and then when I got around it again, Sean, just when I got around it again and then I took that recruiting trip and I went back to a place that I was very familiar with Amarillo. I'd lived there in the, you know, like we were there when I was in the second grade. And then we went back there when I was in the sixth grade. And, uh, I was just very familiar with it. And then I get about like, around it and, and about around some wrestlers. And it's like, and I was smart enough to also know that, you know, Hey, I, I really, to get a scholarship to play football at a, at a, at a major university out of that little town was an accomplishment. Yeah. And yeah. no, I might not. You know, I get noticed in (laughs) (laughs) and I found out I wasn't NFL material like one day at practice. And they said, uh, or the coach said, DiBiase, he said, son, I wish all of my players had your tenacity, but boy, we're going to have to start timing you with a sundial. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least he had a sense of humor about it, right? (laughs) They actually moved me from defensive uh, tackle to an offensive tackle. And they said, we're going to give you the benefit of the snap count. And And let you get in the way of somebody. Yeah. Yeah. So I I knew right then that I wouldn't be going to the NFL. Yeah. And And then uh, then you started, I mean, what steered you though? Is that point you said you, you really kind of went with what maybe you always knew you were going to do? Well, you know, it, it was kind of, it happened gradually. It's like, uh, it was funny. One day I get a phone call from Terry Funk yeah. and Terry says, he says, he said, Teddy, what are you doing right now? And he said, I said, well, nothing. And he says, you know, you have any, st- you're not going to miss it. You know, I can, you know, can you come with me to Lubbock, Texas tonight? And it's a hundred miles away, right? So he had, yeah. they wrestled every, well, I think Wednesday night or whatever it is, Friday night in Lubbock. And I said, sure, I can come. Why? He says, we, we need a referee. <laughs> all right to start and so and so he brings a referee shirt for me and i mean it's like you know and like the first time i step back in a, i step in a ring in front of a live crowd i'm a referee yeah and 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 here's the thing and i never even thought about it sean until later hmm. i stepped back into a ring in the town and in the building where my father died wow 
And it was almost like I, I had this picture, like this is where my dad left off <laughs> and here's where I'm picking it up. And, uh, it's crazy. But, mm-hmm. uh, so I refereed and then, so that summer, instead of getting a regular job, I mean, I had roofed houses and been a lifeguard at a swimming pool and everything. So instead of doing that, I refereed, mm-hmm. I refereed wrestling all summer, uh, for the Amarillo territory. And so I got a real, you know, I started learning the psychology of, 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 of the business. Were you training by, at the same time too? Well, yeah. I mean, I was training and staying in shape for football. Oh, so it wasn't, and then, yeah. And then, you know, so I, I played football my junior year at West Texas right, state. Right. And, uh, and then that summer, Dick Murdoch says to me, he said, he said, Hey kid, he said, you know what? He said, I could probably get you booked with Bill Watts. The, the NCAA had changed a ruling where you could now compete in a professional sport uh, and maintain your amateur status in another sport. But as, uh-huh. so, but once you compete and you get paid, then you can't, you can't ever go back and be an amateur in that sport. Well, even though wrestling was never considered a real sport, I mean, by, by law that they, they did, but now I could go wrestle and still play football. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds really good. And I, I did, I went, I started for Bill Watts in the summer of 1975 and to this day, Sean, you know, I kicked myself in the rear end, but I never went back to, I had one year left. I had yeah. 30 hours and I'd have had a degree in education and, uh, I didn't do it because wrestling went so well that yeah. summer. I got a little money in my pocket and everything. And I said, this is what I've always wanted to do. And I'm doing it now. And I'm just going to keep going. I mean, everybody, the funks, I mean, even, even, uh, even, even Buck Robley, <laughs> who was, uh, you know, uh, you know, not the most. I mean, he was a great mind in wrestling, but he was, uh, you know, kind of a shady. Lucky Land Casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Character. He even said, kid, go back to school. You only got one year left. And oh, I didn't do it. Well, you know what? That's uh, there's still another chapter. You can uh, you can still do that these days. Maybe yeah. that's what uh, that's one of your next challenges. But uh, yeah, you talk about that run. I mean, I was it seventy five to seventy nine, uh, and you rose pretty quickly in the ranks. It was it. Were you, did you feel? And I and I'm I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but in, in a sense that you were a natural once you got in there, or was it because they, they obviously recognized something? 
Yeah, I mean, and I, I, I think, I think, you know, I'm, it's kind of like my, my dad always said. He says, you know, uh, he said, do what you love. He says, right. he says, if it, if you're doing something, because I mean, when I, when I, when I played football, he wanted to make sure that I was playing football because I liked it, and not because he did it. But he said, you will, you will do whatever you have to do to be good at something you love. Mm-hmm. You'll make whatever sacrifices necessary. And I found that to be true. So, I mean, I, I was, I, I loved it. And I, you know, and a lot of people said, you know, kid, you, you're just a natural at this. And I mean, I'll even, you know, I'll even fast forward to, you know, I, it, I when I went back in, I think 2005 mm-hmm. and, and they wanted me to come back to the company and they wanted me to, to try being one of the, uh, being on the, uh, the creative team. Right. I tried to tell him then I said, look, I said, I'm not Clint Eastwood. <laughs> you know, I said, Clint's yeah. good on both sides of the camera. I, I said, I'm not the storyteller. I said, you tell me the story. You tell me you set it up for me and I can go out there in the ring and make it happen. That's where I, that, that's where I'm gifted. Is that the, the, the case with a lot of wrestlers? I've, I've heard you talk before how, um, you know, you try and ask some of the greatest and say, you know, why do you do this or why'd you do that? And he can't tell you because he's, uh, you know, he's doing what he does. It just comes to them. And and is that the same way when they're trying to tell you, okay, then tell people how to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's just it. It's like the idea of me sitting down with another wrestler and mapping out a match for him is absolutely foreign to me. Uh, I, and I never did it. And, 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 and actually Vince looked at me one day, and he said, Ted, he said, you know what? You remind me of Ray Stevens. And I said, how's that? He said, Ray was one of the greatest workers we ever had. And so are you. He said, but if you ever asked Ray why he did anything in any given match at any given time, he couldn't really explain it to you. And I said, exactly, because it's called working. Yeah. Well, and I the mean, same with the, with the, the promos, too. I don't think if, I, if today I, they handed you something and said, you know, because a lot of that's the way they do it. But I know, I, I mean, I remember doing interviews with you and. I just, I was like, he just did that. Uh, that wasn't, he wasn't out there studying notes. He he just did that right then. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it's, it's, you have the idea, you get the gist of what you're about to talk about. Yeah. But it's just, and it is hard to explain. And, and I remember asking Terry Funk and Dick Murdoch that same question when I was very young and I, cause I was still in college and I, I went to a show with them in the same place, Lubbock, Texas. And yeah driving back that night, drinking a beer. And I said, well, Terry, why'd you do this? And why'd you do that? And he looked at me and he said, and and I can't, I'll never forget this. He said, you're not going to understand this right now. It's going to sound like foreign. He yeah. says, but you'll, you'll eventually get it. He said, Teddy, I can't tell you. He said, because when you go out and you do this enough, you, you develop an ear for the crowd. In other words, you, you have a feel sense, yeah. you can feel the crowd yeah. and you know, when it's time to do something and when you do something enough in the course of a, of, of, of a match, you, it's like, you're making the story up as you go. And it's, it's, it's improv. That's the real art of wrestling. It's improv. Yeah. I think uh, a lot of people miss that uh, today, but that's not what this discussion today is about. Uh, But getting back to, you know, because I, I do want to get to the, to, to how it all happened with the WWF, but, uh, you had to earn your way uh, with the uh, Mid South, which was uh, you know a tremendous place to develop your skills. You also did a, a short appearance with I think at the time it was the WWWF, and that you were Hulk Hogan's first match at Madison Square Garden. 
That's right. The first time seventy nine. Yeah. In nineteen, yeah, I think it was December of seventy nine. Hulk had his very first match in in uh, this was before he was a, a superstar, mm-hmm. uh, and he was a heel. He was a heel, and I yeah. was the baby face. And uh, I remember I went to Vince Senior because Vince Senior was the boss at the time, and I said, "I know you want to get this guy over." And I and it was my last. Actually, it was my last match in the company, and I was I was leaving, then going back to uh, to Mid South. And I said, you know, how would you like me to get him over? And, uh, boy, he really, you know, and that made me psychology too, you know, but I had kind of a compliment. He said, Ted, he said, I know you'll do it right. He said, do it any way you want, yeah. which is, you know, when, when he told me that I said, wow, okay, well, I'm really going to do it right. And I did. And here's the thing about Hulk too. Hulk thanked me afterwards. And, uh, I mean, he just kept thanking me and he said, you know, he's, I said, I owe you one brother. Hmm. He's owe you one. And so fast forward, he becomes the big star, you know, WrestleMania three takes place. And it was shortly after that, that Vince brought me back and I started doing the vignettes. And, yeah. but the first time I saw him, the first time that we saw each other after I went back to work for the company, he walks up, he shakes my hand, he winks at me and he says, it's payback time. <laughs> So that's great. That's, cool. that's pretty cool. Yeah, and so you were. Uh, he used to, uh, they used to bring you guys up from Mid South a lot of times and do these enhancement matches. But it, it seemed like you really put the work in. And and uh, uh, back from you know eighty to eighty seven, you're at Mid South. Why was that such a, a great place to develop? And I've looked at some of those matches with you know with Jake. I mean, there was just some. Why was that such a great? Uh, I guess proving ground, a place to hone your skills. Uh, Cowboy Bill Watts. Yeah. Bill Watts, in my estimation, is is uh, you know I mean I'm, I'm serious I th- I say second to none. He you know his understanding of the psychology of what we do and and how it works is better than anybody's. And he he studied under somebody else who was regarded that way, a guy named Betty Graham. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know it's like Vince, and I give Vince a, a ton of credit for. I mean Vince is a marketing genius. The what he did with wrestling and the way he marketed it. Mm-hmm. And he took wrestling, which was pretty much a blue collar crowd form entertainment and made it mainstream and made it family. And, and with the, you know, and all of us along the way were, you know, all the old, all the old school guys were, were going, you know, at first we were going, you're killing the business, you're killing the business. It was a stroke of genius. But the thing that Vince never really did was wrestle. Yeah. And so his, his knowledge of what goes in, on in the ring and how it's done in the ring is limited. And so that's why I say Bill Watts was one of the greatest because he wrestled. He, he understood the psychology of what we do and he taught it. And, uh, you know, just, you know, I learned so much from him. I, you know, I give him more credit than anybody for, for me becoming a great pro. Yeah, and not and not just in the ring because I know uh, you know Hacksaw mentioned that uh, how he would work with you guys just doing the promos and do it again, right. do it again, do it again. Yeah, uh, and so like you said, he understood the whole package maybe ahead of his time. You know, where like Vince, uh, you know, with camera angles and all everything else that came in, but right. the two things—I mean, performing in the ring and then being able to work uh, right. outside was just right. as important. It seemed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean. Uh, it's, it's, you know, that's, you know, uh, that that's, it's storytelling. It's kind of like, uh, uh, I can still, I can remember watching matches between Dory Funk Jr. and Jack Briscoe and Jack Briscoe and say Terry Funk. Well, and you know, uh, Dory Jr. was pretty much a technician type, 
but Terry could do it all. Terry could Terry could go out and have the the scientific kind of match on the mat, in and out of holes and in and out of situations, and and you're up and you're down, and and and, and it excites you. And then he can go and and he can flip and 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 be the the crazy guy in ECW. Yeah, and do it just as well. Yeah, and so. Um... When you do make your return in, in 87, I think it was uh, in May of 87, you, you came up and, and you weren't the million-dollar man at this point. But Vince definitely had uh, the character in mind. And it's it's interesting, uh, and maybe you've thought about it, but a lot of people say, you know, here you had Ted DiBiase, Mid-South, who never really ever had a gimmick. He was, you just did your thing. Right. Why do you think? Why do you think that Vince and you know that there had to be hundreds of people he was considering for something like this? You know, they were going to make a huge push, no matter who got this. Yeah. What do you think he saw in you, who a guy that wasn't uh, known to push gimmicks, that that's the guy? I think it's because of the way I carried myself as a heel, yeah. and and you know, and that and the the deal is that. You know, and I'm sure, you know, if you asked Vince, Vince would say, you know, uh, you know, if it weren't for me, you know, uh, you know, like Ted DiBiase had never been anything. Well, Ted DiBiase in wrestling as it was that day was already somebody, uh, you know, in terms of uh, in the in the territories. And, you know, I was in line to possibly be the NWA World Heavyweight Champion. But what it was, I believe, is is that I carried myself as a I was what we in wrestling call a pardon the, the the expression but a chicken shit heel uh-huh. a bully right yeah uh, guy who talks real big uh gets in your face but when he's confronted he becomes a coward and he uh-huh. takes all the shortcuts and when you're that kind of a heel you never get you you know you never get tired of seeing him get his butt kicked yeah <laughs> and, uh now there's a, the other kind of heel is a tough guy heel and uh-huh. i've always said this if you're a tough guy heel Eventually, the people are going to turn you babyface because everybody loves a tough guy. Yeah, right. That's that's what happened to The Rock, and that's mm-hmm. what happened to Stone Cold. Yeah. Eventually, the fans turned him good because they love a tough guy. But when you're, you know, and like again, you know, JBL, JBL was the cowboy version of me. Right. You know, he never got tired of seeing him get his butt kicked because he would become a coward. Yeah. And. I, I think a lot of it was the fact that that he he had seen me interview and he knew I could interview very well the way I carried myself, and and basically that's what he was describing to me, you know this this million dollar man he's a he's a bully he's a bully with his wealth he bullies everybody he looks down at everybody, and that, that's what that that's that's my estimation of why he chose me. Yeah. But, you know, and I've heard the story told from uh, different people that were very close to the situation uh, with the front office. But when he was laying this all out and saying, okay, and we're going to, you're going to be the million dollar man and we're going to have you stay in five star hotels. You're going to fly first class everywhere you go. And you got to live this uh, in and out of the ring, in and out of the arena. Uh, Were you just going, what, really? Uh, I mean, what was your reaction to that, to that this was what you were going to be doing if you took the job? Uh, well, I, I was, I was flabbergasted. At, uh, <laughs> number one, it's like, oh my gosh, number one, is it really happening? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, especially when he walked, you know, when they, when they, the, the guy walked in the room and counted out, uh, $2,000 and brand new hundred dollars bills and said, this is your flash cash. Like, go ahead and start spending it. 
Yeah, and it's like, you know, pick your spot. And, of course, he said if you abuse it, you lose it. But, uh, for instance, you go in a restaurant, you get up and announce yourself. You tell them, I'm the main dollar manager, lucky night. I'm picking up the tab. Virgil, go get the checks. And, you know, they would add them up. I'd slap down the $100 bills, get the receipt, take it back to the office. The office gives me more money. It's marketing. Yeah, oh, yeah. It was all marketing. It was just genius. And But, wow. Uh, And that's part of the story. I mean, I got all caught up in that. Yeah, uh, and yeah. it's not so much that you know, I mean, yeah, I lived, I lived the character in terms of when people saw me in public. Most of the time, I mean, not not so much in my like, okay, the show's over and I'm going to go back. And I didn't, I didn't walk through the lobby of the uh, the hotel. I mean, there were there were kids that would would, would uh, throw things at me and, and cuss me when I was walking in the back door of the arena, but the yeah. same kids would be standing in the lobby of the hotel with an autograph pad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, they loved, love both. I mean, they love the right. babies and the heels and they wanted your autograph, but, um, I understand. And I, I don't, I, I don't think you ever became that character. People might say, Oh yeah, as a million dollar man, that's who he became. But, uh, you did have to live it in and out of the ring. Was it, was it ever kind of just kind of bizarre to you? Because more and and kayfabe was pretty strong at that point, and they didn't you know they didn't like the babies mixing with the heels and that kind of thing. But uh, like I said, I don't, I don't ever believe that you you know bought the character and were living it. But was it bizarre though that you had to probably carry it further than anybody? Yeah, it, it, it you know it it was it, you know it it was a, it was a little bit bizarre. My wife could even said she goes she goes when you would come home off the road. <laughs> You know, she said, you know, you you would walk. She said she'd watch me walk from the airplane. And, and uh, you know, she could she could just see it. And then she said, I, she says, I'd give you about 10 minutes on the ride home. And she goes, I'd watch your, your shoulders relax. And I'll say, <laughs> you're just Ted again. Wow. <laughs> and then, and then you, you know, you had Virgil. Virgil was with you everywhere. I, you know, Ted, I, you couldn't get away with a character like that today. No. Oh, no. No, not at all. Not and, at all. And, but did, was there heat? Did you, was there a lot of heat uh, outside of that? And and I always wondered how Virgil handled it. And I mean, handle, uh, he was part of this business and, you know, but was there a, a backlash at that time that people maybe never really knew about? Uh, no. You know, uh, you know, Virgil, you know, um, he was he was a nice enough guy. He never, I, I think he appreciated the spot. Yeah. More than anything. yeah. And you know, and and I don't know. There's not a you know, he's not the smartest brick you know in 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 the, you know, in the smartest book in the in the library. I mean, you know, he's <laughs> Virgil. If, he doesn't mean that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if he you know if he if he could uh, if he'd have been able to wrestle better, if he, you know, he, he just didn't, he just didn't have that. Yeah. But what he did have, he had an unbelievable look. I mean, yeah, a oh bot, yeah. kept yeah. himself in great shape. I mean, the guy didn't drink, smoke or do drugs, yeah. Yeah. uh, you know, and, and, uh, he was always on time and, and we got along well. I mean, I just, you know, uh, I would just have to explain things to him, you know, over and over sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> but, but okay, but for the position that he was hired for, yeah. he was yeah. he was perfect. Oh, he was great. Yeah. Never smiled. I mean, he had that. Uh, yeah, yeah. And we, yeah, we we uh, and we we got along fine. Yeah. We really did. 
And I remember, you know, where I was living in Stanford at the time, in the kingdom, and I remember when they brought you in to do those vignettes. And I don't know if a lot of people know the that a lot of that stuff, you know, you drove the Clinet and you were at uh, the mansion, and that was real stuff that uh, was part of um, Mr. McMahon's possessions. And that was, oh, yeah. those were a oh, lot of fun to shoot. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, and everybody is kind of like, well, well. I mean, my gosh, we did Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Yeah, that's really- you know, and I told, I remember sitting out in the, in the back in, in the in the in the chair at, at Vince's house by yep. the pool, and and I said, you know, Robin, I said, this isn't my house. I said, this is the boss's house. He says, don't worry about it, Ted. We do this all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's it's all a work, don't you? Yeah, come on, yeah. the yeah. Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. They- <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's all entertainment. Really- it all got me, yeah. And then I had people start living in Mississippi, right? And I had part, people start saying, well, man, they had you on TV the other day, but, man, I've never seen that house. Where's that? <laughs> I said it's in Connecticut. <laughs> that's, that's an undisclosed location, Mr. Elton. I cannot yeah. reveal. I don't want you hanging out at my, uh, you know, at the wall. <laughs> that's so funny. But those vignettes were great. I, you know, the... It, it, you know, you hear about them all the time, but, the you know, the honeymoon suite where you kick the couple out and the... Uh, the pool scene and the, you know, it, those were just awesome. I just remember thinking, and the guys, yeah. you know, the crew loved shooting those. They had a great time with you doing those. Yeah. So all those guys were, that were at uh, in Stanford, but uh, I don't want to say the gimmick we did that I hear more about and I hear it yeah. all the time yeah. is the deal we did on television with the little boy yep. and the basketball. Yeah. I mean, people want to go, man, did you really do that? And I said, no, of course not. I said, it was staged. I said, we rehearsed it. I said, but when we did it live, I had to be hardcore. He's a little boy, six years old, scared the heck out of him. Yeah, I think he was. Cry- he cried. Crying. Remember at Brand the end of that, he was crying. So he, they, oh, yeah. boy, you talk about selling it. <laughs> like- oh, oh, yeah. I mean, he couldn't have done a better yeah. job. I remember getting in the back and everybody was high five, and I said, "I'm glad you're all happy." And I'll find an armored vehicle to get me out of the building. Yeah, no, phew, man. <laughs> I, you know, you think I don't know if there was ever more heat in a building ever, oh, ever. Oh, I mean, oh, I know. <laughs> they hated me. Yeah. Well, you were doing you were you were obviously doing your job. Uh, you know, Ted, this this podcast, and I, I'd love to get you back because you know how all the uh, the listeners they love to hear about every detail, every yeah. pay per view, and I'd love to go through those. But that's uh, uh, not what we're really going to be going over today. But what I did want to talk about though was some of those favorite storylines and your rise. I mean, once the Million Dollar Man just I I, I think the first time you stepped in the ring, uh, Vince must have just said, "Oh yeah, I knew this was going to work because it uh, it just popped and it never ever stopped." And, uh, you know, what, a year later, you're at WrestleMania four, you were already on the, you know, main event with, with Andre. Uh, wow. Uh, you, even at that point, and you, you were a pretty established star coming in, but that had to blow you away. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, you know, people ask me all the time about, you know, highlights of your career. And I mean, oh my gosh, that's just, oh, I mean, well, uh, you know, Market Square Arena, the rematch yeah. between Hulk and Andre from WrestleMania three. First time wrestling's on live network television since the nineteen fifties. And of course the story is Hulk and Andre, but the the story in the story is me buying Andre services and you know, actually that ended up being the setup for WrestleMania four, and that's what really launched me. And then to wrestle at, at WrestleMania four, basically I turned Randy Savage babyface. <laughs> yeah 
you know, we have the final match and he comes out the winner. And, uh, and then that's the, then we were off and running me and, uh, and Andre and matches against Hulk and Randy all over the country. And then Hulk and any one of a number of guys. And it was, uh, uh, it was an unbelievable run. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. And the, and, and, and WrestleMania for, uh, you know, after the experience, I'd love to hear from you guys because I know how uh, the fans reacted to what was happening with the WWF, but professional wrestling had never reached these kinds of heights at that point. Uh, were you able to look around at some point in the ring and just go, this is this is unreal? Uh, you know, the escorts in and out of the arenas, the, yeah. uh, the hotels, you know, 10 deep, you know, you're trying to get into these places. It really was just an unbelievable time. Yeah, it, it it truly was. I mean, we I mean, I tell people all the time, I said, we became like rock stars yeah. and we were treated like rock stars. I mean, you know, and, uh, and, and, and we became like rock stars in just about every capacity you could think of because the pace was intense, you know, and I know when I first came on board, we were doing, uh, three straight weeks on the road. So 21 days, 21 cities, and then we'd go home for a week and go back and do it again. Uh, and then they figured out that that was, you know, that was too long for everybody to be away from their families. And so they went to 10 days on and three days off and then four days on and three days off. And any way you look at it, you're still only home six days. And yeah. it's just, it's just a brutal pace. I mean, I can remember waking up in hotels sometimes, Sean and going, okay, where, where am I? And I would either have to look at the nameplate on the phone. I would be laughing. I'm going, I can't believe this or look out the window and go, Oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm where I'm, we're in Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> But that was, but that was the way a lot of those cities looked. And I know, you know, uh, we used to go from Stanford where we come in for, uh, you know, these events, and you go on the plane, and then they have cars waiting at the airport. You go down underneath an arena, and you come back out at night. You have no idea where you were. You know, yeah. it's it really yeah. that's you, it's very easy for that to happen. But um, it just seemed like no matter what situation the million dollar man was involved in, it was, it just blew up. I mean, it was, it just uh, was an unbelievable run. And, and this is where it seems like things really began to change for you. And you were not unique in this. We know there was a lot of superstars uh, who ended up, you know, having the same situation where, so when did it really uh, start to change as far as where you uh, started to go down a path you didn't want to travel? At least, uh, uh, you know, later realizing, uh, you know, uh, well, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't too, wasn't too far down, down that road. I mean, it was, it's kind of like, uh, you, cause you know, back in the territorial days, you're, even though you're on the road and you're on the road and, and you, you really were wrestling every night, you know, you would, a lot of the times you would go back at least to your apartment mm-hmm. where your family is, or, or if you were away from them, you were like maybe, uh, a hundred miles or 200 miles away where if anything happened, you could be there in a couple of hours. Right. But now you're traveling around the country and now you're traveling even out of the country. And, uh, and I, that's what I tell people. I said, you know, it's, it is exciting to walk into a building full of people and they know who you are. They're screaming your name and they're either cheering for you or in my case, they're booing you out of the building, which is what I wanted to hear. And, and, uh, but when the show's over and you go back, to your hotel and you're still on that adrenaline and you know, you have, have a bite to eat. And so you're sitting in a, in a hotel room with four walls and a television and your family's not there, you know, and they're not there the next night or the next night, you know, and, uh, 
that's when those things start to, to, you know, you go down to the bar and have a beer with the boys and one turns into three and you get hurt and now you're taking painkillers and, you know, and, and you're having a beer on top of the painkillers and guys start, you know, uh, getting addicted to drugs and, uh, oh my gosh, you know, if I take a little cocaine, I can stay awake. Mm-hmm. You know, I got to stay awake cause it'll keep me going, you know, and, you know, and of course, while I was there, you know, Vince started to implement uh, drug testing, but of course today it's, it, you know, that today, my gosh, you know, to their credit, they have a state of the art program now. I mean, my, I remember when, when my, when Ted Jr. told me, he said, dad, he said, they're so strict now. He said, if I go to the doctor and he gives me an antibiotic, you know, for something and I don't call the WWE doctor and tell him what's been prescribed to me and why, and it just shows up in my blood, I'm docked. Wow. So they're, 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 they're the mean business now. And I think they've evolved just like everybody else has, but that's the way it was then. And, uh, uh, and I just, uh, I, you know, it's, I, 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 like when, when, when you watch a documentary, I'm trying to explain it to my kids. I said, I loved your mother. I said, I loved you boys. And I said, it was, it was almost like I was living two different lives. Yeah. And, and, and really all it was is I was, I was, I was filling a void in my life. Uh, and you know, because I, I, I wasn't accountable to anybody and I, I hadn't, I hadn't built those safeguards into my life to where I could be accountable. And, uh, which would have made it a lot easier for me. Yeah, and and, and uh, a lot of people know the what what's going on back then, and, and as far as you guys uh, and your work schedules were just incredible, and I I knew it well because I was in the event center doing all the markets, and sometimes you guys were doing I, the the company was doing three shows a night, and you would you know they'd group these folks in different areas where you know they maybe fly into an area, they get in a, after one show they'd get in a rental car, they'd either you know or stay the night there, and then drive over or drive over that night. And and you have this cycle. Where you've got to get up. You've got to find a gym, and the, you get this cycle that that keeps going. And and you know you you can, you can make all the excuses you want, or whatever. But there was you, you had to be in the ring. You had to show up, as they say, for the red light. But right. Ted, what was it like when you did go home? Though were you was it a kind of detached, different world? Uh, and, and how how did that affect you know you had young sons then, and your wife Melanie. Uh, you know, you're probably dead tired, you probably sleep most of the time. So how, what's that relationship like during that time? Well, we you are know, home. here's, here's the thing. You know, when I went home, uh, is when I would really relax and, and what, for a and, day, I mean, you, you, well, I'm, time, really. I'm saying, but you know, for whatever it was, I was going to get as much of it as I could. And, yeah. and so it's just like my wife saying, she says, I could, I could remember, I could, wa- I would watch you just relax. I could tell when your shoulders dropped and everything that you were, you know, it's like you're okay. I'm home and I'm, I'm in a safe place now. But even, even when I, you know, like I, I would come home off of red eye flights, you know, where I, you know, like we'd been on the West coast and you know, and I caught a plane at midnight and had to connect in Atlanta and got into Jackson about six 30 or seven in the morning. And if my boys had a, a soccer game, yeah. I, I went to that game. Huh. I was, I was there. And I'd go crash later, but I mean, I made sure my boys knew that I was invested in their lives and, uh, you know, and I would, you know, I was the guy, you know, I'd be in the backyard with all the kids. I mean, uh, it took some of the kids. It's kind of funny story. There was one, one, one boy who he was a good friend of mine. He's still a good friend of our families, but 
man, every time I would come in the front in the back door, he would run out the front door. He was scared to death. Of me. <laughs> and then uh, he didn't want you to give him a hundred dollars. I thought he had, being birthday, a... <laughs> he had a birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese. And when Chuck E. Cheese came into the room, Chuck E. Cheese scared him. And he ran to me. <laughs> well, if anybody could take Chuck E. Cheese, you couldn't. Yeah, That's yeah, for sure. Since, since I saved him from Chuck E. Cheese, I was I was good after that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's get to when the door slammed. And folks, uh, we're not going to tell the whole story here, but um, because the film is premiering uh, Tuesday, right, Ted, and and uh, theaters across the country. Yes. So if you can check it out, folks, check your local listings, as they say. But uh, at some point, it it had to end, and it, it at this point, it did not end well. Um, WrestleMania Eight, Indianapolis, um, um, in the night after that. Uh, well, that night after that show, uh, I did the usual thing. You know, went out you know, in my limousine and yeah. you know dressed in my tailor made suit. You know, and I got a pretty girl on each arm. I'm cool and I'm doing the thing and uh, partying into the wee hours. Had the limousine take me to the airport. Uh, caught a plane to Detroit, checked into the Marriott Hotel, and then I called home. Mm-hmm. And waiting for me on the other end of that phone was hell. Because yeah. Melanie had now discovered some of the stuff I was doing. And I'm going to tell you, Sean, it, it's like, uh, the Bible says this. The Bible says, "Whatever you do in darkness will be will be revealed in the light." It's not a question of then, just uh, of, of if. It's just a question of when. Yeah, and I say it's funny. Like, I have that down here, right here, because I heard you say that. I said that I, that has got to be a line I know that really stands out to him. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Because and when it is, you see yourself, and you see the truth for what it really is, and it is ugly. And in that moment, I realized that I had put at risk the most valuable possessions of my life. I mean, the love and commitment of a, a devoted wife, not to mention the future, the stability, the peace of mind, and the well-being of my children, and all for an ego trip. Yeah. Now, was it all, was it phone? All, what was what was your downfall? Because a lot of people, we didn't have the, the cell phones like we had uh, have now, and we didn't have was it? I mean, fo- phone records. Uh, it was from, yeah, it was from phone records. Yeah, wow. And uh, she started making some calls. And uh, it just, uh, uh, the uh, there's a guy who's my best friend. Uh, he was in there. If you watched yep. it, you watched it. Old, old Pastor Hal, I'm telling you. He, uh, you know, when I, when I went to, uh, I turned to him. Mm-hmm. He made arrangements for us to fly to St. Louis, and uh, that was the hardest day of my life. Uh, yeah, I, I think he mentions in the film how when he picked you up, and you know, you're, you're at this point where you can't go. There's not a place on earth you can go where people don't know you. And he said you were just broken. Right. You did not uh, even acknowledge, and it wasn't because you didn't like these people. It's just that you were broken. Oh well, yeah, it was just. Uh, that's where I was. I was just, I, I mean, I really thought that I was going to lose everything. And in my mind, I thought, you know what? And not only am I going to lose everything, I deserve to. So how'd you build yeah. it back? Uh, well, number one, the first thing I did was I genuinely committed my life to God. Uh, I speak about that in terms of uh, 
you know, people talk about committing their lives to Christ. And I, I tell them, I said, before you can commit it to him, you have to surrender it first. And you're either all in or you're not in. You know, there's a lot of casual Christians. Yeah. Well, you left, show- you left the company even. Yeah. Well, and I, and I did, and I, you know, about a year later, and it wasn't because I was unhappy about anything. It was because mm-hmm. I, I understood that I had to separate myself from the environment that I was in. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's kind of like, if you're going to quit drinking, get out of the bar. Yeah. And, you know, and so it, it you know, and, and what I did I, when I left the company, I went back to work for a company in Japan. Now, even before, I mean, before, you know, b- before, uh, when I went to Japan, Japan was like going on retreat for me. It was a foreign country. It's a foreign language. It's very expensive over there. And so, I mean, I didn't do anything in Japan except go to work and go to my room. And so I said, I'm safe there. Uh, but, but no, I, I, you know, I left because I had to separate myself from the environment or I, I feared it would suck me back in. I mean, it's like one of those things where, uh, you know, I mean, it, uh, Jesus said this, he said, the eye is the lamp of the body. He said, if your eyes are good, your body's full of light. If your eyes are bad, your body's full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Basically, he's saying you are what you behold. Mm-hmm. If you're gonna, if if you're determined that you're not gonna drink, then don't go to a bar and and and, and hang around there every day because eventually you're gonna drink. You know, if you're not gonna do drugs, then you know you get off the street corner where you're gonna find them because eventually, you know, you know you are what you behold. So, I had to separate myself from it because. Uh, the accountability uh, for the guys wasn't in place uh, like it is today. I mean, there's a lot of things different about the company today that are very, very good. And in the uh, meantime, though, Ted, how did you uh, rebuild that relationship? Because I think Melanie says in uh, the film of, uh, that her heart was broken beyond repair, and she said that in order for me to uh, move forward uh, in her faith, I think she said you have to give me a new heart. Uh, how did you rebuild that to really from, from nothing ashes. I, I, I looked at her, you know, you know, it's funny, both pastor Hal gave me this book and I recommend this book to men everywhere. It's called maximized manhood. And it speaks about the characteristics of being a godly man, about strong character, integrity, being a man of your word, being a spiritual leader in your home. Uh, and basically, uh, Dr. Cole says, uh, synony- uh, uh, manhood is synonymous with Christ likeness. The more Christ like you are in character, the, the bigger man you are. And so as I was reading that book and I realized that I had failed in every, every area and, and, and what would my dad have thought? Hmm. Oh my gosh. That, that just absolutely pierced to me. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's it, 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 on, on, in spite of the mountain that I had climbed to, to, to get to where I was a mountain that, that, that he had never climbed so high on. Yeah. Yet if he could see me right now, he would be so disappointed. And, uh, now to my wife's credit, you know, she talks about this when she goes out and speaks with me, you know, as a Christian, we're called upon to forgive and it's, it's not conditional on anything. Yeah. In other words, forgive as you've been forgiven because we are forgiven unconditionally by God. So Jesus says, forgive as you've been forgiven. Now, there's a lot of things that happen in your life that, that makes it very hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> but she said, 
she said, I wanted to be obedient. And she was as open and honest with me as she could have been. She said, number one, no, I'm not doing this for you right now. Hmm. She goes, because you don't deserve it. She goes, wow. but I'm doing it out of, out of obedience to this voice in my heart that for whatever reason is telling me to give you another chance. And your family. And, and she said, I'm, uh, um, um, she goes, I, I've heard what you have to say. I've seen your tears. And she goes, I, I think you're sorry. And I want to believe you're sorry. And, and I, I have forgiven you. She said, but I'm not sure that even though I forgive you, I'm not sure I'm strong enough to stay. I, I just, I just don't, I just don't know if I can. Wow. And I looked at her and I said, if you'll give me this chance, I'll become the man you thought you married. I'll become a man of strong character, integrity, spiritual leader in my home, and God willing, one day regain your trust and respect. And um, when I came time for me to go back on the road, I actually made a list out for her of all the towns I'd be in, not, not only the towns, uh, but the hotels and the phone numbers. Mm -hmm. And she tore it up. She threw it in the waste paper basket. And she looked at me and she goes, I'm not going to put you on a, on a chain like a dog. Hmm. And she said, I watched you make a commitment to Christ. And she said, he's your watch. He's your watchdog. And he said, if you wanted to find a way to do this again, you could. And she goes, but just know this. If you do, he'll bring you down so fast your head will spin. And when I say the hair on the back of my head stood up, it did. And, uh, um, so it was time. I mean, Sean, it was time. It was like, uh, two, the next two years were, were hard years. Uh, uh, two years of, of, of my wife trying to forget and two years of a husband trying to prove himself. But as Melanie slowly began to see the priorities in my life change, you know, me, she'd get up in the morning and I'd be sitting at the table with a Bible and a devotional. Mm -hmm. And I began to lead my family to church and lead my family in prayer. And when she began to realize that my priorities had shifted, it wasn't about my business now first. It was about them. Yeah. Well, and, I think that when people, uh, I hope they check out this film, um, that they know you're, you're very uh, religious-based. Yeah. But when you watch this film, it's not, uh, and I know there's a strong message in there. I don't want to say it's not as strong. But to me, it's uh, about being a man and it's about yeah. uh and about failing and going through right. uh and getting back up again and never never quitting uh, to me that was the strongest message in this so, so i think there's there's really something for everybody in this and, and for people who've been through you know there's millions who've been through yeah. uh, the same it. thing oh you said it so well because you know, that's the question that's been asked. You know, what do you want people to take away from this, Ted? And I go, look, whether you're a, a person of faith or not, mm -hmm. there's 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 something for you here. Uh, you know, uh, I talk about uh, I talk about David a lot, Dave, because I made my ministry heart of David. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, even if you look at, at at the Bible as as you know storytelling. Why is it, what was it about David that God could say he's a man after my own heart? Even though the same David who killed Goliath went on to be an adulterer. 
and he had a very, very dysfunctional family. The thing about David was he never quit. Every time he fell, he got back up. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's, that's, that's what I think is there for, you know, like no matter where you've been, no matter how many times you've failed, get back up. Yeah. And how, uh, and, uh, Ted Jr. obviously went, uh, followed in your footsteps as far as becoming a professional wrestler, uh, when he had a, a lot of other options as well, but, uh, it was something that he felt he needed to do. And how concerned were you at the time for him and yet trying to be this dad who's got to yeah. let him find his way? Oh, it was, that was hard for me. Yeah. It was very hard, but I understood. I mean, it was like, I'll be honest with you, Sean. It's the first time I got a glimpse that I, I believe how our God loves us when he says, okay, I've given you the guidelines to live by, but yeah. you you want to go your own way and I'm going to have to let you go find out the hard way. Yeah. Uh, and, um, I knew, uh, you know, Teddy said, dad, he says, you've always been my hero. I've always wanted to be just like you. And I knew, I knew that there was no way for him to under totally understand what I was trying to say, even though he heard my story, he'd, he'd see, you know, he, he, you know, he hadn't seen everything, obviously, whatever my wife and I did, we did privately in terms of, you know, my, my kids never saw us argue. Hmm. Uh, but he was going to have to find out for himself because if I didn't let him go try, he would wonder the rest of his life if he had, if he could, could have done it. And if I, if, and, and then maybe held me, you know, held me responsible for now. You know what I'm saying? Like, you yeah. know, like I, I could have been somebody, but you know, because you didn't give me that chance, you didn't, you didn't know, give me that you chance didn't me or whatever. Um, exactly. and, and, you know, I think people were just shocked when he walked away. I think that the, the people still don't uh, believe it, uh, because, uh, he was over. I mean, I don't, you th- he don't, he could have found much more success in the WWE. Yeah. And, and I think he was, they, they wanted him. They offered him another contract, didn't they? They offered him another yeah. contract and, and he, well, he called me and he said, yeah. dad, he said, uh, he said, I just wanted you to know something. And I said, we well, said, but the first thing he said was first, I don't want to hear those words. And I said, what words might that be? And I, he said, I told you so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I said, okay, I, I won't say that. So what's up? And he says, well, my contract's up and, uh, I'm not going to sign. Wow. And really? And I, and he said, yep. And I, I said, well, okay, tell me why. He says, well, I really have figured out that, 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 that you're right. You know, he says, it's not that I don't love what I do. He said, but just the nature of the business and, and the demands it puts on you, um, uh, even though it is a better company than than it was when you were there, even yeah. though uh, we go to work four days and come home three, it still is so demanding. That, I mean, if you're going to be, you know, if you, to be a star, mm-hmm. and that's the only way to be, in my opinion, to be in the business because it's the only way you're going to make enough money to have something later. Yeah, and there's a sacrifice in the process, as we know that uh, a lot of guys. It wasn't even the ones who. Uh, didn't go down a real dark path. Uh, it still cost them with their families because they weren't there for a lot of it. And uh, you don't. It's really tough to repair that later. Yes, when, when exactly. you haven't, you know. And basically, he he said that. He said, "Dad." He said, "He said, you know." He says, "Is you know, it's if I weren't married and didn't have a family, hmm. I'd, I'd jump on it because then I'm the only one that I, you know, I don't have anybody." 
else. He says, but I won't have. Them. He says it. What you know? He says it wouldn't be fair to my wife or my child. Wow. And uh, I said, well, that's great. Yeah. You know, and uh, I was, you know, and he did it. You know, he did it in a, in a good way. He, you know, he didn't leave any bad feelings with the company. Um, and I was very proud of the way he did it. Yeah, and, and Ted, why make this film now? I mean, you you've written all this down. You uh, you you carry this message in a lot of uh, when you're when you're uh, before uh, you know the the flock. Uh, why why was it? Did you feel it was it was uh, you know a good time to make a film? And why why do a film? Well, you know, Sean, it's it's I think it's a lot of things working together. Number one. Uh, the guy who did most of the work, Peter Fierro, uh, approached me five or six years ago about just doing an interview. But he was doing the interview for a friend, what they call a shoot interview. Yeah. We're not telling, we're not talking about wrestling uh, storylines. We're talking real life. You start asking me about my real life, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start telling you what Jesus did in it. And uh, in Pete's own words, at the time, he was the backslidden son of a minister, and mm-hmm. he said my story resonated with him. Uh, it helped turn his life around. Uh, you know, then if I was, you know, speaking anywhere in the New York area, he'd come and, and see me and we'd hang out and we became friends. And then, you know, he, his, his regular job is he does wedding, uh, photography and video. So he documents weddings and he said, I've never done a documentary, but he says, I'd like to tell your story, Ted. He says, I just think it needs to be on film. And I said, that's interesting. And so, uh, when he went out with me, cause he wanted to, he, he, I always talk about going to the desert cemetery where my father's buried. And, uh, he says, I want to go to that place mm-hmm. and see Wilcox. And well, Teddy came, he came with me. You know, I think at first Teddy was kind of, you know, suspicious of Pete, like, you know, what's this guy really after, you know, I want to take care of my dad type yeah, of thing. Right. And, uh, but, but you know, they hit it off and then, uh, and then Teddy knows that I speak to a lot of men. And I speak about the importance of, uh, of fatherhood. And he said, let's put a twist on it, dad. It's your story. It's you and mom, but let's tell it through my eyes. Mm-hmm. And, and so we did. And, and, and again, in doing that, and it's funny now, my boys had sat in church and they'd heard me tell or, or share the testimony, if you will. But that's it. I mean, and I always said, if they have any more questions, they'll come ask me. It wasn't until we did this that yeah. the direct questions came. Yeah, and that's the, I was going to bring that up here next, is that I think that you learned a lot too in this film. That I don't know if you expected to, because uh, you said, you know, I told the story. Yeah. But it must have surprised you, because there's one point where there's a pretty heated confrontation yeah. with Brett and you, and uh, I... I I can't imagine you expected that, or did, did you think this was a great opportunity where they're going to come forward and want to hear? Well, you know, I, I didn't really expect, I didn't really expect that, you yeah. know, but, you know, but I, it's like I told them, I said, you know, all I can tell you is this is, is, you know, uh, you say, how could I, well, I, I don't know. And I look back at that guy and I go, I look back at him and go, how could you do that? Mm-hmm. I said, but at the time, I, it was like a, it was like a man living two different lives, and um, trying to, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> ignore ignore the obvious, if you will. Yeah, and I, yeah. you know, and, uh, 
uh, I said, well, you know, and I told him in the conversation that wasn't really on film, I said, you know, the, the truth will set you free. Hmm. And I said, once the truth was out, I really was free. I mean, because I, I, I didn't, you know, I, I carried that burden and I carried the guilt. And uh, once I was free of it, I didn't ever want to go back there. Yeah. So. Well, Ted, is you, you, you did, uh, you've been involved with the WWE really since I think you came back in 94 for, you know, a couple of years. And I think, you, you know, you said you, you realized that going on the road and that kind of a being away wasn't what you wanted to do, but you, and you went to the end uh, the WCW for a few years. Uh, how do you look back on that period of time and, you know, where you've come now to, uh, with professional wrestling and, and everything you've done along the way? Uh, well, you know, uh, the years of WCW it was just, it was moving. You know, you know, I left, when I left WWE, I wasn't unhappy with the company. I was just, you know, Vince had decided to put me back on the road. You know, uh, we've had that conversation since then, but, uh, you know, I, I, I went to Vince eventually and I said, look, I should have come to you and let you know how I felt. But at the time, I felt like you're a businessman. You're going to put me where you need me. You're not interested in my personal situation. And I said, I know now that I should have come and talked to you. And he said, yes, you should have. So we buried the hatchet. Uh, but the, the years of WCW, I didn't like. Uh, it was a very poorly run organization. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, you know, I was on a contract. It was a guaranteed contract. They had to pay me. And it was, it was, I was still, I was starting to go out and speak already. Yeah. And uh, it was just, you know, and when, so when it was over, I mean, that's really when I, you know, I made the, the decision to walk away from wrestling altogether. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, that was in 2000. And since then it's pretty much, except for that short year and a half that I went back for a little while, uh, it's, it's been all ministry. Now, so did it really, uh, was it really coming, did it come full circle when you were inducted and not just the honor of being in the WWE Hall of Fame, but having your sons there to induct you? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, I still, when I watch that ceremony, I'll tear up because when I hear my, my son say, you know, I'm so proud of the man my father is today, mm -hmm. a man of strong character and integrity. And, um, uh, you know, and I, you know, and I, you know, when I when I gave that speech, I, I made sure that I I thanked God, and I made sure that it, I publicly thanked my wife, mm. and and so yeah, it did. It it uh, it brought it for full circle. Well, it's uh, it's an amazing film, folks. It's a, a great cautionary tale, and like I said, it, it, it there's there's so much in it, and I I really believe it's 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 about. Uh, being a man and, and being able to uh, you know overcome and uh, and heal and I, I hope you take a chance to see it it's uh, premiering on Tuesday uh, there's listings make sure you check it out I'm sure you can find where it is in your town uh, on the internet and uh, one thing I really liked about it too Ted it was a journey for for Ted jr and um, you know I, I did a similar journey when I got older I was trying to figure out who my uh, father was and it, it didn't end uh, so well uh, but what what is so great with your story is that uh, these ki these kids are still in your life and you and you are you are you have this understanding now and I think that uh, maybe because some of the, the the way you traveled you've you've been able to help make them better men I, I, I don't I hope that 
that maybe that's uh, in some respect you feel that way because you know, like you said if, if that stuff wouldn't happen how do you learn from it right exactly and and I, and I have learned from it and yeah. I think they have too uh, and you know and again you know uh, I've, I've, I've emphasized time and time again since then there's nothing more important and nothing no, nothing more important than family you know uh, your family comes first and I tell men this when I speak at men's conferences all the time I said the greatest thing you can do for your children is love their mother, yeah. you know, in the, right, in the right way. So, Well, this has uh, been a, a great conversation, Ted. I don't know if you ever step back into the Million Dollar Man, but uh, I'd love to hear him. And it, can I play stupid Mooney and say, Ted DiBiase, do you really think there is a price for fame? Mooney, everybody's got a price for the Million Dollar Man. I love it, Ted. Really, uh, thank you so much for coming on Primetime. Thanks, brother. I appreciate you. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Primetime and this time out with Ted DiBiase, the million-dollar man. And, you know, I have to tell you, uh, after talking with him, he is richer than he has ever been right now. I'll be sure to tune in next week when my longtime close personal friend, that should give you a big clue, as he would say, the one, and there is only one, there is no other, mean Gene Okerlund is going to be here as we talk about our days together at the WWF WWE. And I'll tell you, I can't wait for that conversation, and I hope you feel the same way I do. That is coming your way next Wednesday when we drop the podcast at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. Now, as promised, I have before me an unreleased, never-before-seen matches DVD, and I want to thank everybody who uh, over... The last week have gone to iTunes, giving us a review and a rating. So now it's time to go to the ding, ding, ding bowl and draw this week's winner. And here we go. You can hear it. See, they're all in here. I got some nice, fresh ones. And let's see who our winner is. Uh, it is Will B 2027. Will B 2027. Okay. And what I want you to do is uh, DM me at Sean Mooney who and give me an address and I will send this. I will sign it and I will send it to you. And as I've said before, I don't care where you are, no matter where you are. You could be the UK. You could be down under somewhere. Uh, I will make sure that this gets to you. Okay. And then we'll give another one away next week. So congratulations to Will B 2027. Also, go check out. Uh, Prime Time with Sean Mooney, Tease, okay? There's some uh, really good ones out there, folks. I want you to go check them out at ProWrestlingTees.com. Get your Sean Mooney Who tee. I know our producer, uh, Casey Drumbeck, loves his. He wears it proudly. <laughs> now, if we can just get a few more out there, it'll be great. Uh, I promise there are going to be uh, some more designs. And uh, no matter, I'm telling you, no matter what the design, if you go there and you uh, get yourself a tee from ProWrestlingTees.com, I promise I will call you. I will call you. Made a call this past weekend, and I hope we have a lot more of those calls to make. Okay, that's just about going to do it. Please keep the comments, suggestions, and gaga coming. Also, your list of superstars and others you want to hear from. And you can reach me again at Sean Mooney Who with Twitter or at PrimetimeMLW on Twitter. Also, email me. Uh, those you uh, who have done that, you know I answer you back. 
So email me at email me at primetime at mlw.com. Be sure to tune in next time for Gene Okerlund. Thanks for listening, everybody. Talk to you next time. I'm out. The world of MLW Radio never stops. Interested in starting your own podcast? Audioboom can help with our $9.99 monthly subscription plan for hosting and distribution. You'll get 200 minutes of recording time per episode, a branded homepage on the Audioboom platform, embeddable players for web and social media, advanced analytics, and so much more. To sign up for your $9.99 monthly subscription plan, go to audioboom.com start. That's A-U-D-I-O-B-O-O-M dot com slash S-T-A-R-T.